You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, Lacrosse is at it again with a new line of lace-up hunting boots, the Navigator Series. And in that Navigator Series, there are two models. There's the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. To find out more information about this new Navigator Series, visit lacrossefootwear.com. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. So in today's episode, I got a few things I want to go over. First of all, I wanted to kind of give a recap of just the past couple weeks of hunting, both in Minnesota and Wisconsin, which I've been both hunting, an update on my bows, and specifically which ones we're going to be using, at least for the next several weeks uh, or indeterminate amount of time. And then on top of that, just kind of a breakdown of some of the hunts I've had recently and things I've learned, not only in terms of the deer hunting itself, but also in terms of gear. I've been really playing around with a few things, especially on the pack side of things and on boots and just kind of keeping things dry and also keeping things stealthy in terms of noise levels. So I'll dive in a little bit into all of that. So I guess, you know, for starters, what I've been doing over the last couple of weeks is kind of a mix of both Minnesota and Wisconsin, sort of going back and forth, so to speak. And it's it's kind of a, a challenging thing. I mean, I feel like, and I've probably talked about this before, that for me, if I wanted to be probably the most successful or maybe give myself the best opportunity for shooting a good deer, I wouldn't hunt both states simultaneously. I would just pick one and just figure it out and hunt it down and, and really try and get on something specific and maybe run a lot of cameras where I have access to. But, um, part of the reason I'm going back and forth is because I feel like for me personally, my best chance at shooting, a, you know, maybe a decent sized deer is kind of in that marsh country, at least until the rut really gets going. You know, right now we're still kind of in that stage where we got a lot of scrapes popping up and in the marsh, I'm able to read the sign pretty easily and also kind of predict where the deer are going to be coming from. Whereas in the hills, it's a little bit harder for me to predict. And, and even in the places I'm running cameras, the pictures and just kind of the movement and travel is, is so sporadic, you know, even when I'm using the quote unquote, typical bedding, uh, food sources and travel in the Hills, it just, it's really hit or miss oftentimes. And I'll go into that in a little bit more detail. But for me, like I said, I'd rather hunt the marshes now. But on the flip side of that, because of that random movement and the fact that I have a little bit better opportunity to see deer in general, and it's a little bit shorter of a pack out to get the deer out of the woods, I'm trying to hunt Wisconsin from the standpoint that I want to be able to get my wife onto deer. And Sam and I have gone out hunting a few times now, and um, she had a really close encounter this last time we went out. So basically... This last weekend, I hunted Friday, Saturday, and then same hunted Sunday. So for Friday afternoon, I basically was able to get off work early. And I said, you know what? I'm going into uh, this hill country stuff. And there's this spot that I had just gotten access through a private piece to access this piece of public that's kind of secluded. You technically can get into it via a river, but it's really hard to get back out because the river that goes past is just flowing like crazy. Um... There's, there's really no good way to basically get back to the location where you parked if you go in by that river. So realistically, the only way to get through there is through private land access. 
and I was able to secure some access to get through that private to get to this more secluded piece of public. Not very big, maybe like 10 or 15 acres. But anyway, I went back there, picked what I thought was a pretty decent access route, got set up. There wasn't maybe, you know, the greatest tree selection in terms of cover. A lot of the trees at this point are really starting to lose their leaves. And I picked the best thing that I had really an opportunity to sit in. And I had pretty good visibility. I mean, I could see probably give or take a hundred yards in most directions. And not 15 minutes after I'd gotten up in my tree, I saw the first deer of the evening as a little five point buck. He ended up walking almost directly underneath my tree. He was probably four or five yards from the base of the tree. And he hung around that area for several hours, really. I mean, even uh, very close to closing, he was still kind of hanging around. I'd see him in and out of the, the cover and there's a button buck with him as well. And these deer were just kind of moving around, chasing each other. Uh, there was one doe kind of in that group too, that she was getting harassed a little bit by that five pointer. Uh, it's definitely not full blown rut yet by any means, but they're starting to get antsy. And, uh, so I'm thinking to myself, I'm not interested in either shooting, you know, the five point or the button buck. If the doe would have gave me a good shot, I may have, and I actually tried to, with my longbow, get a shot at that doe. Uh, but with the, the camera movement and me trying to get a, a shot opportunity and the fact that there wasn't great cover in the tree I was in, I ended up getting picked off. So we said, okay, tomorrow is going to be the day we're going to get Sam in there. She's going to get her crack at a deer. Hopefully we went back to that same area, but picked a spot a little bit lower on the hill. So I was kind of up on that upper third where I could see a long ways and the wind direction was different. We had a south wind instead of a north wind. So we tried to get down in this bottom area where our scent would hopefully be kind of picked up and carried out over that river. Well, it turns out we get into that area, I climb our tree and that south wind is very clearly blowing kind of like a, you know, like a northwest. So we're thinking, what the heck, you know, if we had known that going into it, we would have picked a little bit different spot. But at that point there was still you know, plenty of opportunity that deer could for sure come from other locations that wouldn't be downwind. So we decided to stick it out. Not maybe an hour after we had gotten set up, I see a deer come down the hill. And it's that same five pointer. I'm very certain that I had seen the previous evening. And so I'm like, Hey, Sam, get ready. She can't see the deer at all, but it's coming through kind of this thick, kind of like a buckthorn kind of feeding his way through just took forever, probably 15, 20 minutes from when I first saw him to when he finally closed in even within 50 yards. And so Sam and I were kind of whispering to each other. I said, okay, you're going to have to, you know, cross over to your weak side uh, in the saddle. And, and for me, the way we were set up, we were hoping to get a deer to her strong side, which would have had me on the back side of the tree. I could film right over her shoulder would have been perfect. But this deer was on the opposite side of the tree, which meant that in addition to her having to move to be able to shoot underneath her bridge. I also now had this deer directly behind me as it was coming in. So as this deer is closing the distance, I'm filming over my right shoulder and I need to basically spin, you know, almost 180 degrees so that I can move the camera over to my left shoulder to be able to film on that side. And then in addition, kind of pivot my way around the tree a little bit to get out of Sam's way so she can actually take a shot. Because as we were set up, I was kind of right in the way of her shooting opportunity in that shooting lane. And this deer was just, you know, making his way in nice and slow. And before we knew it, he was within 30 yards and okay, now for sure, we know that he's going to, he's going to cross to that side of the tree up until that point, he was kind of weaving in and out. We're quite sure if he's going to go to a strong side or weak side, but at that instance, I was pretty clear, like, okay, he's going to pass 
probably 15, 10 to 15 yards on Sam's weak side. So we both start moving real slowly and I'm trying to keep as good of an eye as I, you know, really can on this deer, which is tough because he's almost directly behind me. And I'm trying to control my movement as, as much as I can. And we just did our best. And probably when I was about halfway through my motion of moving the camera from my right side to my left side and rotating out of the way. And Sam had her bow pretty much underneath the, the bridge and she was ready to move her feet then to get in a position that buck kind of noticed a little bit of movement out of the corner of his eye. And he looked up at us and, you know, at that point we knew that we were pegged. So it's just a kind of cross your fingers and hope that he's going to go back to what he was doing. And probably after, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds of him doing the head bob, uh, he decided he didn't like what he saw. And then he turned around and ran back to where he came from, which is pretty disappointing. Cause I mean, even though he was a five pointer, Sam would have been absolutely, you know, stoked to be able to get a, her first shot opportunity at a deer. Um, and you know, really what we could have done better and what we did wrong, it was, you know, pretty obvious. We just didn't have enough cover in that tree to be able to get away with the movement that we were trying to get away with. So as an alternative, what we could have done was either get to a tree that was on the opposite side of where he would have came from, which would have been tough because, well, it would have been tough to put the tree. It would have been tough to know that he was going to take that trail. You know, we had kind of every indication from the sign and the previous day's movement that he was going to come to Stam's strong side. But in that kind of open hill country, there's not a great pinch point to really control their movement where we were sitting. So he had probably, you know, a 7,500 yard lane that he could come really anywhere he wanted through. And he decided to come to that side of the tree. In hindsight, we probably would have been better off hunting on the ground because in order to get cover in those big, you know, it's mostly red oak trees, a few white oak trees in that area and mixed in with some pines, you have to get high. You know, you got to get up to that first big split or we start to get into some of that canopy that's still hanging on the last few leaves. And with my four climbing sticks and the aiders, which are too long for Sam to really use, we're probably only able to get maybe, I don't know, 14, 15 feet high where our platforms were, which in early seasons, fine. But this time of year with all that, all those leaves down, you really got to be careful being that exposed. And we had canopy as a back cover. So it wasn't like we were just completely skylined by any means, but when the deer's, you know, sub 30 and there's just not that much in between you and him, I mean, it's, it's just pretty tough. Um, also the fact that Sam being behind the tree for the most part with her saddle, I don't think she was the one who got detected. It was probably most likely me as I was trying to kind of swing on the front side of the tree to be able to get out of Sam's way. Uh, he probably saw the relative movement of my lighter colored camo jacket against that tree bark. And that was probably the movement I'm assuming that, you know, really tipped him off that we were up there. So the weather's just continued to be, you know, really pretty phenomenal this week. I've been hoping to get out a few more days this week after work because I mean, we've got, we had 20 degrees this morning when I woke up, uh, ice is starting to form. We are probably going to stay in that sub freezing or right around freezing for the next, gosh, I don't even, even the 10 day forecast, I don't even really see that many, any warm days coming up. So it's just going to continue, I think to be really good. So any of the sits that I have, like I said, even though we're seeing deer in that, that hill country, if it's just me, I'm going back to Minnesota, I'm going to hunt some of those swamps and 
if it's a hunt with Sam, we're probably going to go back to the Hills just because I, I really think that that's her best opportunity getting a, a shot at any deer, so to speak. We're trying to figure out too, what that means in terms of, you know, the future of her and me trying to sit together in the same tree, because we're probably always going to come to kind of that same sticking point where for me to get 18, 20 feet up in a tree, I can carry three climbing sticks and aiders and get up there. No problem. But for her, my DIY climbing sticks are, uh, I mean, they're, she can use them without the aiders, but they're a stretch that 22 inch step spacing. She's ideally more of like a 15 or 17 inch step spacing. So she's really got to work for it. And I have to space those sticks probably, you know, 15, 17 inches apart too. So we're just really not getting the amount of height that we would like. I tried making Sam her own stick. Um, and it, it packs down to a three quarter inch profile. It's a little bit, a little bit, uh, I think the, probably the word I'm looking for is like flexible. I don't want to say bouncy, but it's when I put my feet on the top step, that top double step, and I kind of wiggle my feet back and forth, there's just a little bit of rotational movement in that stick. So it's probably a little bit lighter than what I would want to use, but for her, it's going to be just fine. And if I build her, you know, four or five of those sticks, maybe even six, she's going to be able to get a fair bit higher in the tree than I would with, you know, half a number of sticks. I'm also working on building some sticks for myself that are also three quarter inch stacking profile. Um, actually I take that back a five eighths stacking profile that are basically made in the same design as the lone wolf custom sticks. And the only reason I'm looking to do that for myself is just from the standpoint that I can throw my sticks in my load shelf then, and then be able to carry my bow with the compression straps in the backpack. And the advantage with that is not as huge in something like hill country or other kind of dry land. But when I go out in those marshes and you get some of that, uh, you know, kind of quagmire bog stuff where it's, you really, you really need both hands to be able to balance and grab onto things that being able to carry my bow on my pack is a fairly big advantage, I feel like. So that's kind of the only reason I'm looking at building some sticks in that style. And I would make them 24 inch step spacing, just like my other sticks or 24 inch, or I guess overall length. So roughly 22 inch step spacing. So kind of cutting the middle ground between the, the mini size and the full length lone wolf custom gear. And if they end up being a little bit too flexible for what I want, then I'll just go back to a three quarter inch profile instead of the five eighths. But, um, yeah, that's kind of the equipment side of things for climbing the trees and what we're trying to figure out, you know, what's the best thing to do. And in all honesty, we think the best thing is going to be for us to start climbing different trees because my ideal tree size is going to be just a hair bigger than hers. Meaning I can climb a tree that for me is borderline too big. It's way too big and kind of sketchy for her to climb. And her tree that she would find, you know, maybe comfortable to climb in for me is going to be a little bit on the small side in terms of overall diameter. I mean, she could climb a tree that's, you know, probably six, seven inches diameter, no problem. And for me, I can only get up, you know, X number of feet before that tree just starts making way too much movement. Uh, from my weight swinging around in it. So if we climb two different trees, not only does that solve the issue of us trying to move in that same tree with kind of double movement and, uh, making sure we're staying out of each other's way. If a deer does come into that offside, like it did in that case, but it also allows us to basically have the cameraman almost try and connect the shooter and the deer in the same shot and be able to both stay on the, the backside of the tree. So very similar to kind of what Shane and I had done 
when we were out in North Dakota where Shane was, you know, 10 yards behind me in a tree and he was able to kind of capture everything all in kind of the same scene and in the same shot. And that turned out really well. So the only downside to that is that we each have to carry our own, carry our own sticks, but I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I think the advantages might outweigh the disadvantages for that. The other thing too, is the camera guy can just tuck themselves into the most gnarly thick tree without any kind of worry about having to draw a bow back. So there's definitely some advantages on the cover side for being able to climb different trees. So going back to this weekend on that Sunday hunt, after we had hunted the hills day one and day two, essentially, and finding some deer sign and obviously seeing deer, but not finding, you know, a ton of big buck sign had gotten some big or pictures of nicer deer on camera, but just haven't really been able to put the pieces together and figure out exactly where they're hiding out. Uh, my theory is that they're probably bedded on public or on private land. So we decided on Sunday to go back to the marsh and went into an area that looked really good, uh, potentially on the map, got back in there and just saw some big tracks, couple sets of four finger tracks, uh, fresh scrapes all over the place, just popping up. Like we probably saw on that one scrape line right on the edge of the marsh, maybe, uh, five or six, just all super fresh scrapes torn up. And we ended up getting into a spot that was close to a point And, uh, it was just, you could tell it was an old clear cut or old clear over. They had aspen trees that were, you know, probably in the, uh, three, four five inch diameter range, just all shredded up from previous years. And they had already been starting to get, uh, rubbed up from this year on some of those trees. So we ended up sitting right on the ground there because there was no trees for us to really set up in. So we just took our predator platforms and just stuck them on those little aspen trees, six inches off the ground. And then I put a ghillie suit cover on and we just sat there for the uh, remainder of that day. And apart from one deer that we kicked out of those aspens that was bedded right there next to some of those scrapes, we ended up not seeing any more deer that sit. Although we did hear a very distinct grunt coming from, um, out in the middle of that clear cut, uh, where some of those aspens are growing up. And so it was pretty clear that there were deer bedded there. I don't know if there were any of the big ones that were leaving some of that sign, but what my plan is for the next time I go out there, I'm going to move offshore, so to speak. And when I say offshore, I don't mean like across water. I mean, across like marsh cattails and, and uh, bog to get to some of the islands because there's either one of two possibilities. The possibility number one is those big deer are bedded on the mainland, uh, kind of on the, the bigger chunks where you got, you know, hundreds of acres of continuous dry ground, so to speak. And the other alternative is that they're bedded out in those networks of smaller islands that are surrounded by the cattails and marsh and stuff like that. And so with those scrape lines being kind of right on the border of the marsh, they could very easily be doing both. They could be on that dry ground, or they could be coming from those islands out onto the mainland and then making those scrapes once they get there. So that's going to be a really quick, easy way for me to really figure out if they're out on the islands or if they're on the mainland. If I go out to those islands and there's just not that much fresh sign, then it's pretty clear that I should be sticking to kind of that main ground. But if I get out there and I even find any amount of fresh sign, then that to me indicates that the water's, you know, not too deep for them, uh, that there's definitely deer out there using them. And from my perspective, they're going to be more likely, or at least a bigger deer is going to be more likely to be bedded out in those network of islands that are further away from the typical human activity. And they're probably just coming back to that main ground, uh, across the marsh, most likely after dark, you know, at least until we get into a little bit later in the rut, uh, maybe that first, first into that second week in November.
So that's the plan for me is uh, hit the islands and depending on what I see that first set, make a decision on whether or not to keep hitting more islands and bouncing around out there or just coming back and hunting the main ground or the main ground. And then for Sam, whenever we're out there together, it's just going to be going back to the hills and we might hunt some of those same spots we already have. We might hunt some of the other tree stand spots that we know of. Uh, last weekend when I was out there, I was hunting in a thermal hub and I had probably a hundred inch eight pointer come through. So that's definitely a deer that she would be more than happy to shoot. Um, she's really at this point, and, and I've been kind of, you know, telling her the same thing that, you know, don't get any kind of preconceived notions or ideas about what you should or shouldn't shoot. Like just, you know, basically take the, take a shot at the first deer that gives you a good shot opportunity. Um, whether that's a spike button buck, 10 pointer doesn't matter. So that's what we're after with, with her. And I think that if we, if we put enough hours in the tree in that type of spot, it seems like that last week of October, all the way through that, you know, second week of November, if you get hours in the trees and trees in some of those spots, you're going to have deer walk by at a, a certain point. It's just kind of a matter of time. It's just the, the bigger deer out there that are really tricky. And I think they have just such a huge advantage with the wind and thermals, uh, especially if they're betting on private, that it's just really, really hard to set up on a lot of those deer outside of the rut and, uh, and be able to get really pinpoint, um, hunt setups where you have the thermals and the wind going for your favor and you know almost the deer's favor not only for the hunt itself but also the access and then on another equipment related note one thing i tried doing is with my hip boots since the hip boots i have are those tingly ultralight boots with the sewn on and kind of epoxy yoder chaps which are kind of like the dan's frog legs they're just uh like 400 denier nylon with a waterproof um, layer essentially. So it's kind of like there are brush busting chap that's sewn onto a waterproof boot and that boot system with the, basically the whole hip high, uh, setup is less weight than just your typical, you know, knee high rubber boot, significantly less weight. So they're very comfortable to walk in. I've been pretty much hunting with them almost every sit that I've gone out in the marsh. And what I've been doing this year that I haven't done in years past is really trying to pay close attention to keeping dry feet. And so how I've been doing that is I actually bought some, uh, special foot antiperspirant. It comes in like a, kind of like a cream that I bought off of Amazon and I'm able to just put a little, you know, drop of that on my feet and rub it in. And then as soon as that kind of air dries, I'll put on really thin polypropylene liner socks and then put on just a, a lighter weight Merino hiking sock. And then I put those uninsulated waterproof boots on. And then as I walk into the woods, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, 60 degrees outside, doesn't matter if it's, you know, 38 degrees outside. So far I've been able to walk in and keep my feet pretty much bone dry, which is a huge advantage because to this point of the season, I have not had cold feet once yet. And we've gotten down to about 40 degrees multiple times when I've been out in the tree for extended, you know, two to four hour sits. And in the past, that's, that's been a stretch for me, you know, at that point, I'm typically wearing 800 gram, maybe even 1200 gram boots just to keep warm feet, but just keeping those feet dry seems to have made a really big difference so far. And I'm able to basically hike in with those lighter weight boots and not have to carry in an extra pair of boots, uh, to be able to get me to the spot I'm wanting to go to. 
because um, the alternative is I wear the hip boots or even chest waders to get to a spot and then I have to pack in essentially the warmer insulated boots that I would change into once I get close to where I'm going to set up. So my plan for once it gets colder is instead of trying to bring in those warm boots, I am going to attempt to basically bring in just the boot blankets. Uh, so Arctic Shield makes some and I think, oh, what's the other company that makes them? There's another company that makes those boot blankets as well and they come in like a much beefier like uh, very padded option they're like probably an inch thick but those arctic shield ones are much thinner and i can't imagine they're as warm but i have the the thinner model and so i'm going to basically just bring those in and once i get to my area and my uninsulated boots i'll just put on my bibs zip them down over top of the the hip boots or the chest waders and that serves a dual purpose because those boots are not quiet by any means. They're very noisy. Um, those bibs over top will cut down a lot of that noise once I get close to my setup. And then I'll just put on the boot blankets and, uh, and just kind of go from there. And I think that in and of itself is going to be a big difference maker this year compared to how I've done things in the past. So regarding the noise thing, those nylon exteriors those kind of briar proof brush brush busting, uh, chaps that are sewn onto those boots. They are noisy to rub against things. And they are also kind of crinkly. They're really bad when you first buy them. Um, I almost returned them as soon as I took them out of the box because they were so loud. And then I thought, you know what, I'll use these for scouting or whatever. And I have used them quite a bit for scouting, but this year I decided to use them more for hunting as well. And the biggest thing is early season, it's not as big of a deal because you got foliage up, you got bugs making noise. Um, it's just the ambient noise in the woods is louder. You got leaves rustling in the trees. So that walking in noise is not as critical. And it's also a little bit harder to, or it's a little bit easier to be able to hide and kind of blend into everything. And then once I get really close to the spot that I'm going to set up anyway, what I would basically do is just really, you know, take my time and almost kind of walk, uh, bow-legged to make sure those things aren't going to brush against each other. What I did too is I took basically a, a little three-quarter inch strap and I sewed it to the back outside of each of those hip boots at the very top and back so that I can basically cinch up the top of those hip boots and lock them in place so they're really tight onto my thigh. You know, where they come stock, they're just kind of, you know, really open and you got several inches of space around the top of that boot. And that allows little sticks and leaves and stuff to fall inside. So adding those straps, it allows me to tighten up the top of those hip boots. I can keep debris out. And it also really prevents the boots from being able to rub against one another as I'm walking. So that was kind of a nice double-edged sword positive thing right there. What I tried doing is kind of a, a third thing was with those boots, I wanted to basically stealth strip them. I started getting to the point where I really liked the boots and I wanted to kind of keep hunting with them as my hunting boot and not changing into something else. But still that noise was kind of irritating me. So I wanted to put stealth strips on everything and I didn't have enough stealth strips to be able to do the entire boots. Uh, but I did have a big chunk of kind of this uh, true timber uh, fabric that's very similar in, in feel to the stealth strip. And I was like, you know what? Um, I got enough fabric here that I'll just cut it into strips and I'll try putting on some carpet tape, that indoor outdoor, really, you know, sticky adhesive, double-sided carpet tape and just try to stick them onto the boots like that. Did not work out as well as I had hoped. Uh, as soon as I got through the water, that adhesive started to kind of loosen up on that carpet tape and 
by the time I got back to the truck on that very first hunt, uh, there was pieces of material just kind of hanging loose everywhere. So I just peeled it all off. And what I'm just basically going to do is I'll probably put real stealth strips on the inner thighs. And then I'll just basically, when I get to my tree, if it's early season, I'll just stuff in a little light, cheap $20 pair of fleece camo bottoms and just put those on over the boots so that they really just kind of, you know, completely cover up those, that nylon entirely. And if it's cold out, then I'll just, you know, wear my sanctuary bibs over the top and that whether I'm using chest waders uninsulated or hip boots uninsulated, I'm not gonna have to worry as much about that contact noise as I'm walking in because I can really slow things down that last 80, hundred yards as I get close to my spot. I can dump my pack, take all my stuff out, kind of get dressed and then take my time getting to the tree and getting set up. So that's so far seemed to be a really, a really viable option that's going to alleviate me from having to pack in and bring an extra pair of boots. Um, still trying to figure out how exactly this is going to work the best for Sam. Cause as cold as I typically get during hunts, she's on like a whole nother level, uh, to where I was wearing uninsulated boots on our last hunt. And I really didn't get cold at all. And, uh, she was like borderline shivering, uh, wearing every bit as wearing a full sanctuary set. We're talking like 40 degrees, uh, full sanctuary set fleece underneath, um, insulated boots. And, and she still got pretty gold. So we'll have to figure something out. I'll be able to start packing in a sleeping bag for her to sit in or something. So, um, if anybody's got any suggestions or solutions, I, you know, I think the, the next thing we're realistically going to try is just, uh, either buying a pair of pack boots or just using those same boot blankets and just really stuffing in the hand warmers over top of the boots. Um, the nice insulated hand warmer muffs or hands get cold in those. So I might just pack in like two or three of those chemical heated warmers for each, each hunt. And we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, I hate being cold on, on hunts, So I can imagine how she feels and want to make sure that that's not going to be an issue. And then for packs, I broke down and bought a Sika fanatic pack. I've talked plenty of times before about how much I like my mystery ranch pop up 28 in terms of the functionality and usability and the, the pack that the, the fact that it has that frame that can, I, I can make it small. So it takes up a very small profile in the tree, but at the same time, I'm able to pop up that frame and carry out an entire whitetail like I did in North Dakota. And it has pockets pretty much where I want them to be for the most part. It's got enough external pockets that I can keep things separated. And I don't have to dig into that main pouch pocket to be able to, you know, get out a little camera or something like that. So there's a lot of things I like about it, but the only thing that I, still have been kind of not super fond of is the fact that once again, it's noisy, uh, in comparison to, uh, something like fleece. So the fabric is a little bit noisy. It's not the, not a deal breaker by any means, but as we get colder and colder and as there's less and less foliage and you get some of those real crisp, calm, quiet days, I mean, every, you can hear the mice scurrying 30 yards away. It's just, it's so quiet. Um, so I've been really looking into that that fleece type pack. And it was either the sick of fanatic or it was the, uh, the day one, uh, makes a fleece pack as well. And they were both very similarly priced only like a $10 difference. The, you know, sick is about 200 bucks and that day one's 190. And I decided to go with the Sika and just check it out. And I will say that it is very well, uh, thought out and put together. Um, all of the little straps, work very well. I thought they were going to be maybe kind of hard to utilize with gloves on, but they don't seem too bad. 
all of the plastic buckles where they do have them are completely covered up in that uh, that basically fleece fabric. So there's really not much opportunity for you to hit even the plastic buckles. And then for all of the places around a traditional pack, you would have kind of a you know a side clip buckle. You basically just have kind of a hook and loop type system. Uh, so it's really silent attachment. There's only one zipper on the entire pack and it's at the very top where I'd want to keep things like, you know, licenses or headlamps or things like that. They want to have easy access to the top, but for the most part, it's just, uh, all those silent hook and loop closures. And this pack does not have any sort of frame whatsoever. It's basically just a loose, loose pouch that is, oh, it's probably pretty close to 30 liters. I want to say, I think it's pretty close in size to that pop-up 28 in terms of overall volume maybe a hair bigger, uh, but no frame. So I played around a little bit with essentially the ability to pack sticks, ability to pack a bow. Um, it packs a bow really well. Um, it packs sticks decently well too, uh, but you can't obviously use both at the same time, which also is kind of a struggle with certain sticks on the mystery ranch pop-up just because I can't fit, you know, sticks that are like my DIY ones, which are, you know, like the B sticks for anybody who wants a visual, I can't pick, pack those very well inside the load shelf because they take up so much packing space. So I usually put them on the outside of the pack. And when I do that with the compression straps, then I got to carry my bow. But with this uh, fanatic pack, <clears throat> fanatic pack, it can carry a bow really well. It can carry the sticks, but once again, it can't carry them both at the same time. So if I carry like, you know, a bag of wild edge steps on the inside, then I can strap the bow to the outside, which is nice. And, but I will say that, you know, you start getting, you know, six, seven, eight pounds of climbing method. You throw in, I don't know, four or five pounds worth of cold weather gear. Uh, you start looking at throwing a bow on there and it very quickly gets to a point where you really wish you had a hip belt and at least some sort of structure in that frame. It's not a pack that's intended to carry, you know, even really moderate loads. Uh, it's definitely a light load type of pack where it would work actually really well is if you're a tree stand hunter and you just want to, you know, you're basically, you got the hip belt and you got the padded shoulder straps and your tree stand already. And that acts as your frame. Then you can just take that pack, basically, you know, lash it onto the, the back with all of your extra clothes, uh, throw the camera gear and whatever else you want to throw in that pack, uh, which I mean, to be fair, that's what that pack was designed for. Uh, so I think from that application, it's really going to do well. It's just, you know, for how I hunt and, and with me more often hunting with a saddle and carrying in my climbing method on my pack and potentially wanting to carry the bow on the pack. Um, it's definitely on the lighter end in terms of structure. I could see after a long, you know, mile and a half type trek, I could see my shoulders getting a little tired, not as much of an issue in early season, as much as as late season where that volume and the overall weight of the pack really starts to grow pretty quick with the addition of those additional cold weather, uh, garments. So we'll see, uh, the intent, that I had when I first bought that pack too, was that I might be able to modify it in such a way that I could have some kind of removable attachment that allows me to uh, basically attach it to that pop-up frame, which would in a sense kind of give me the best of both worlds. It's not going to be obviously as quiet as just the fanatic pack by itself, but what that would allow me to do is obviously leverage that frame. Um, but then also have just that really quiet pack material and not have those loud, noisy zippers, uh, have a little quieter face fabric, even to the point where I could hang that pack off of my camera arm strap up in the tree, right in front of my body at my knee level. And I kind of use that pack as 
uh, a knee pad of sorts. Uh, whereas right now I wouldn't really do that with my pop-up pack. I usually have that thing hanging off to the side to where it's uh, totally out of the way. So for anybody who's looking at that thing potentially for a tree stand pack, it's it's nice. It's realistically probably a little bit bigger than what you likely need, uh, depending on what you're carrying. Um, you know, if, if you're hunting out of a tree stand, it's like, what do you really need? You can lash the clothes directly to the frame itself as always an option. So, you know, some food, water for an all day sit, uh, grunt tube. If you want to bring rattling antlers, uh, carrying your bow accessories like hats and gloves and stuff like that, that you need to have in kind of an enclosed space, uh, range finder. Yeah. Like that's, it's got plenty of room for all that stuff. Um, the only time where it's really going to come in maybe a little bit on the short side is you're trying to stuff all of your cold weather garments inside the pack. Then you're going to run out of room, uh, pretty quick by trying to stuff in, you know, like, uh, incinerator bibs or, uh, first light sanctuary bibs and the jacket, like inside that that's really going to take up space pretty quick. So I don't know how long that'll take me to probably figure out how to modify it. I know kind of what I need to do. The only thing that I'm a little bit leery about at this point is, you know, once I start sewing, uh, the instant I do that, that kind of, um, I can no longer return it. Um, might reduce the resale value. Obviously if I decide not to stick with that pack for whatever reason. So I'm trying to figure out a way first before I start sewing, if there's a way that I can make it easily, you know, attachable and detachable. Um, and there's some concepts that are kind of rolling in my head that I think may work, but we'll see. Uh, I may, uh, may pick uh, Carl Kasuth's brain when I'm down in Missouri. Speaking of Missouri, next Friday, I am headed down there for a several day hunt. I'm going to hang out with some of the, the guys from the tethered crew and we'll basically be hunting public land in Missouri for, uh, well, it's, it's going to be almost five days. We'll be down there for five days, but hunting probably four. Sam and I may both buy tags for sure. I'm buying a tag, may buy a turkey tag too. And then if I happen to tag out early, Sam may buy a tag and I'll film her or we might just both buy tags right off the bat and just both bring our bows in. Or we may just have me hunt in her film. She's still at the point now where, you know, she wants to get a deer, but she's not quite, she's not quite at the point yet where she's ready uh, or feels like she's ready to hunt completely on her, on her own and, and just pick a spot in the map and go hunt it. You know, she's really in tune to being able to figure out, you know, or understand why we're picking some of the spots that we are to hunt and she's asking the right questions. Uh, but I think she just wants to keep that going for a while longer yet before she really starts to break out on her own. And that'll probably be like a next year type of thing. And that's, that's totally fine by me. Uh, so that's, that's the plan. I'm really excited for these next few weeks. You know, the weather, at least for the extended 10 day forecast looks fantastic. I'll be trying to get out any chance I can after work. And then obviously the weekends as well. If you guys have any questions about those you know specific gear things that i mentioned um i'll try to just yeah just shoot me a message and i'll send you a link to you know basically any of the things that i talked about in the podcast itself that'll do it for this episode as always make sure to follow the sportsman's nation on facebook instagram and youtube leave us a review on itunes and if you're looking for additional content from bobby boswell or myself subscribe to diy sportsman and boudreaux boswell on youtube and with that thanks for listening